Welcome to In Focus, a discussion of current issues affecting our economy, featuring a review of the latest research and analysis from the Washington Research Council. My name is Lou Moore, and I'm the president of the Washington Research Council. And with me today is Chris Schobloom, who is our vice president for research and our staff economist. So, Chris, uh, you did some blogging last week on a subject related to the minimum wage debate that's going on statewide now. Yes, uh, I did. There's a firm in Seattle called Cascade Designs. Um, They uh, uh, manufacture uh, various sorts of outdoor equipment. And they announced, uh, and they're, they're located actually in the Soto region, down south of downtown, south of the, of the stadiums. Uh, and, and they uh, announced that uh, they needed to expand and that their expansion was going to be taking, take place down in Nevada rather than in Seattle. That uh, as a result, they're, they're going to build uh, a manufacturing and distribution facility near Reno, and that about 100 jobs uh, from Seattle will move down to that facility, leaving 300 to 350 jobs in Seattle itself, still in Seattle. Um, the primary reason for the move was the cost of space in the Seattle area. It's just very expensive to obtain real estate here. But a secondary issue that they mentioned was the $15 minimum wage. Just one aspect of a, of a number of things around here that are raising costs of doing business. The jobs that go to, to Reno will be paying $10 an hour or a bit more. Many of them are going to be, be the kind of more labor-intensive, less specialized type of jobs you often see in manufacturing. The good news is that a lot of the more complex, high-tech manufacturing jobs are going to remain in Seattle. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the story on this is that we're gradually pricing our, uh, our area out of the market as a location for the less skill-intensive jobs. And uh, minimum wage is part of that, but there are other aspects. Well, I'm hearkening back to uh, the piece that you did, I believe, last week on the fact that the sustainability report that the city of Seattle put out said that they had hit their numbers on residency, but they had not hit the numbers as far as job creation. And I think there may be a relationship there. Going back and looking at those numbers, um, they had really missed on the manufacturing target. Now, the the number of manufacturing jobs targeted was not that great, but they were way off on that. And Mm -hmm. I think those kinds of jobs are long gone. So anyway, as far as Cascade Designs, it appears that a prime reason was uh, the cost of the space that they were renting, but there was a secondary reason they mentioned as well. Yes, yes, the the minimum wage. You know, we know that the minimum wage is one, uh, just one of a number of local policies that raise the cost of employing folks in Seattle. Paid sick leave and other things also come in. It's going to be interesting as this conversation continues about the minimum wage uh, to see how easy it will be to attribute effects of it where it's been raised already. It's, uh, this will be interesting to watch. Yeah, it's very difficult. You know, and, and I think this is an example where, um, where there are a number of factors uh, in play in, in, in uh, this location decision. You know, all of them cost-related. And I think that the, the, the minimum wage is just... Um, um, a, a part of a broader range of considerations about the cost of doing business in the Seattle area and uh, Washington State in general. 
Sure. So you uh, had some economic news you wanted to share as well. Yes, we got the monthly collections report from the state's uh, Economic and Revenue Forecast Council. Uh, came out on Thursday. Major um, general fund uh, state uh, revenue collections for the most recent uh, collection month uh, were $53.8 million higher than had been anticipated under the November forecast. Um, that's good news. Cumulatively, collections are now uh, $69 million above the um, forecast. Now, some of this good news, the positive variance in forecast speak, is due to some audit assessments that came in, some additional kind of one-time money from out of audits, and also the, the fact that a... Um, refund that it had been anticipated would be would be paid wasn't paid on time but it will be paid in the future if you factor these all of that out sort of in ongoing revenue we're about for the three months uh, most recent months we're about 27 million above forecast uh, and then there's another 21 million in just kind of one-time money coming in it's good news and on, on the basis of this I expect that the next Adjustment to the revenue forecast will be upward, but there's not so much there that I'd anticipate a large increase in the forecast. So beyond my index of how many cranes are operating in downtown Seattle and other communities as far as where our economy is, this is actually a substantial, if modest, indication and measurement that we're on an uptick economically. Yeah, Yeah, it's always good to see the surprises be on the plus side rather than the the minus side. Sure. even if they're small surprises, if they're, go- they're going in the right direction, and that's a good thing. Uh, one other thing I should note is that on Friday, the um, legislature uh, passed uh, what substitutes House Bill 1105, which is uh, an early action supplemental budget for the current biennium. Uh, tucked away into that was a, a provision that pulled forward the update to the revenue forecast uh, under the normal schedule, the next uh, update would come on March 20th, but now they're planning to uh, do the update on February 20th. That's this coming Friday. Um, I think the, what's happening is that uh, here is I think there, some legislators believe that if they get this update sooner, they'll start into the heavy work on crafting the budget for the 2015-17 biennium, which is the the big to-do for this legislative session, mm-hmm. uh, and that getting started a bit earlier will make it much more likely that they'll actually be able to finish the budget on time. They'll meet the April 26th deadline for the end of this uh, session. I uh, was at a luncheon with the Democratic House leadership last week, and they were insisting that they could get this done in 145 days. So we'll have to see. Uh, yeah, I, I am skeptical. Some folks are skeptical. I'm skeptical, and I'm skeptical not because— A lot of folks are skeptical. Uh, that, not because it would be that difficult to do all the work that needs to be done between now and then. I'm skeptical because there are a bunch of very difficult decisions that have to be made. Absolutely. Politically difficult decisions to be made. Legislators are going to have to accept a compromise that leaves key constituents very unhappy. If you reach such a compromise 
at anything but the very last minute, those constituents tend to feel that you could have tried harder and done better. Almost the dynamic of this means that you have to reach the agreement at the last minute. And the real last minute is June 30th, the last day of the biennium, the day before the new budget has to be in place. Yep, yep. We'll see what comes next. So I wanted to just bring up briefly a topic that's gotten a little attention, but not a lot of serious attention yet. We now have legalized marijuana in this state. Uh, It's legal to grow it with a license. It's legal to sell it with a license. Uh, There's some taxation now involved. But interestingly enough, uh, there are folks talking about the tribes coming in to be able to to sell it, to cultivate it, and perhaps even to have smoking rooms because they don't have the same uh, regulations that folks do under the state law in terms of smoking on business premises. So there's going to be a conference at uh, the Tulalip Reservation on February uh, 27th where they talk about this topic, and there is a bill that's going to get a hearing this week Senate Bill 5848, and there's a companion bill in the House, HB 2000, that would uh, clarify this relationship, uh, would state clearly that the tribes do not have to pay state taxes. And so I think this is interesting. And, uh, you know, so far it's been a very chaotic market. There wasn't enough product at first, and there was way too much product, and the price crashed. But once this market rationalizes, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in terms of the dynamics in our agriculture community when more serious farmers take a look at it, which I don't think too many are right now at cultivation. And now with the uh, the tribes, uh, I'm not aware of any tribal government that has expressed uh, a lot of interest in this, but obviously there's some interest because of these recent developments. So we will have to see. Yeah, we will. We have one more item that has to do uh, with Chairman Carlisle. Yes, yes. Uh, Reuben Carlisle has a blog and on his, he posted on school funding, a very interesting post on school funding last week. He's starting to question whether we should reconsider the role of local funding of schools. That the whole legal trajectory we've been on in the state since um, at least the 1970s has been towards um, reducing the size of local levies uh, and increasing the relative share of uh, funding for schools that comes from the state. He's taken a look at this and starting to quite wonder whether when we look at our peer states, the states whose educational systems we aspire to, to what extent do those systems, state systems, rely on local funding as opposed to federal funding? And he's finding that a number of the states that, that we would, would think would be, you know, kind of whose performance we think we should emulate tend to rely to um, a much larger extent extent on local funding than we do. Uh, He's just starting to say, you know, if they can do real well with local funding, if they can do better, if they can have better educational outcomes with with more local funding than we have, maybe there's some benefits to that that we've not really recognized. Well, this this is an interesting conversation because after McClary, of course, and particularly in this legislative session, there's a lot of talk about levy swaps and the state taking a larger and larger, if not just an absolute predominant role in funding education. So 
Yes, yes. But we're on a trajectory that's being driven by the state Supreme Court and their understanding of the way that the uh, what what the meaning is of particular words that are written into the state's constitution. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how far we can, you know, turn back from that course. Yep. But it's it's an interesting discussion. I think he's trying to kick off. It is indeed. My name is Lou Moore. I'm the president of the Washington Research Council, and I've been here today with Chris Showbloom, who's our vice president for research and our staff economist. We appreciate all of you joining us. In Focus is a production of the Washington Research Council, dedicated to providing timely, credible research and policy analysis supporting economic vitality and private sector job creation. Your tax-deductible investment allows our work to continue. For more information, go to researchcouncil.org.